Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. I hope you are doing as well as I am as I sit in my office and look at uh, my three and a half foot long DNA model. It is awesome. It is from our friends at dnaandbeyond.org. So go to dnaandbeyond.org and check this out. It's really cool for teaching uh, people about DNA, for learning by yourself about DNA, or even just having uh, something cool around your home. It's really awesome. So check that out. It even splits in half magnetically. So you can make RNA as well. So go to dnaandbeyond.org, check that out. And I also wanted to encourage you, uh, just last week we interviewed Dr. J.P. Moreland. He is a renowned Christian philosopher, has a number of wonderful books and, and videos. So go ahead and check that out. I hope it will be as beneficial to you as it has been to me. Well, I'm Nick Shalna, and I'm very excited uh, to get into the topic that we're going to be talking about. And before we start, I wanted to tell you, that you are a theologian. So there's a tragic misconception in the church, and really in in academia, I think, in general, and there has been for a long time, that the term theology is a fancy and loaded term just for those with high academic achievements or who wear white robes and have beards. But this could not be farther from the truth. Um, In fact, the term theology, it, it just means the study of God. Theo means God, and, and anytime you see ology, at the end of the word. That's that's the study of that thing. So simply put, theology is thinking about God. And I'm sure there's no one here who never thinks about God. So you are a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian or are you a bad theologian? And this goes for both Christians and non-Christians. So I wanted to kind of tackle, or at least touch the surface, Uh, of one of the most important topics in Christianity, and that is what they call the incarnation, or in other words, embodied flesh, to become flesh. The incarnation is the event where Jesus Christ, God, became man, where he took on human flesh, where he dwelt among us. And in fact, this idea really comes from John 1.14 that says, in the word, meaning Jesus Christ, you'll see that in the context of the rest of the chapter, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this event in human history where Jesus Christ, the word, God himself became a human being, is the incarnation. So the incarnation is essentially like the moment in real life where the author of the play walks onto the stage. And doesn't just walk onto the stage so we can get a quick look at him. But the word used here is he comes and he dwelt among us. And that term dwelt really means to pitch your tent among people. So he came to live among us. He came to be with us. God himself became man in order to be with us. And C.S. Lewis, one of our favorites here at the C.S. Lewis Society, I bet you could have guessed that, he calls the incarnation the central miracle inserted by Christians where they say that God became man. 
So the incarnation is really, uh, in addition to the resurrection, I would say one of the two or three most important things that we need to get straight and that we need to understand, not only for ourselves and for our own Christian faith and, and for our own relationship with Jesus Christ, but also to be able to defend to other people. To be able to point to scripture and say, Jesus Christ is God. It says it right here, right here, and right here. And Jesus Christ is truly human. Otherwise, of course, he can't sympathize with us, as scripture tells us in Hebrews that he can. And he couldn't have been the punishment for our sin if he wasn't truly human. So Jesus was and is truly God and truly human. So in order to understand this event that they call the Incarnation... We need to understand the nature of Christ, who Jesus Christ is. Uh, and this is a mystery, as, as we'll see in, in a few minutes, um, that really should not lead to confusion because God is not the author of confusion, but it should lead to worship. And at the very least, it should answer some questions for you and help you to grasp a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Of course, at the C.S. Lewis Society, we hope that when you listen to the Universe Next Door program, you leave with more knowledge of Jesus Christ than you had going in. And you leave with even better reasons to believe and to defend him and who he is. So the term logos is the term used for word. So when, when John 1.14 says the word became flesh, or when the beginning of the book of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're talking about Jesus Christ. That word is translated from logos, which is an ancient Greek term that meant an eternal or unchanging truth or the intelligence of the universe. Um, in fact, it may be helpful to read these passages inserting the word intelligence. I'm not sure if Dr. Woodward still does this. I would imagine he does. But he would have his students retranslate these passages, inserting the word intelligence. So it would read that in the beginning, the intelligence was God and the intelligence was with God. Or John 1.14 in this case would say, in the intelligence became flesh and dwelt among us. And that fits right in with intelligent design, doesn't it? So the intelligence of the universe became man. Just stop and think about that for a moment. The intelligence, the one who created everything, the one who is eternal truth and goodness himself, becomes human, not, not just a human lookalike, but truly human, and he dwelt among us. He is with us. And when we put our faith in him, of course, we believe he's with us for the rest of our life and for the rest of eternity. So John 1.14 says the intelligence became flesh. Now, in order for Christ to become flesh, that of course means that he existed prior to his becoming flesh. I mean, the language just tells us that using our common sense. If I were to become a doctor, I would first have to exist in order to become a doctor, right? You can't become something if you don't exist. So Jesus, already being God, became flesh. He existed eternally as God before he was human. So Jesus did not come into existence as God 2,000 years ago. Jesus, God himself, took on flesh 2,000 years ago. And this is a very important point to understand, and we're going to get a little bit deeper into that in a minute. But a couple years ago, Lifeway Christian Ministries, uh, founded by the Southern Baptist Convention, did a survey 
of evangelical Christians, or at least they claim to be, and they received over 3,000 responses. And unfortunately, uh, that survey revealed that over three quarters of those identifying as evangelical Christians clicked in a true or false uh, survey that Jesus Christ, it is true that Jesus Christ is God's first and greatest created being. So more than three quarters of the church said, yes, it is true that Jesus Christ was created by God the Father. Now, sure, maybe a handful of those people may not have just really paid attention to the question. Maybe they just glazed over it and saw greatest and assumed, okay, well, sure, Jesus is great. But three quarters is a lot, and that word created is a very important word that we should focus on here because Jesus Christ was not created. And if he was created, he didn't have the power to save us. So it's very important that we understand that he is, in fact, God and man. So as we will continue to see, we'll we'll jump to uh, the book of Colossians for just a second. Um, And before we get here, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians, he was facing a giant issue. Uh, Those in the town called Colossae, were being encouraged to worship angels. So there were Jewish false teachers at that time teaching that angels were divine as though they were gods and as though they had power. Uh, In addition to beliefs floating around Colossae, that there were spiritual forces that controlled planets and stars and, and physical elements, and those things were thought to control people's destinies. So Paul is looking at these issues going on in Colossae. He's looking at what they're believing, uh, probably carrying over into the Christian religion from what they previously believed about the uh, scripture calls them elemental spirits of the world controlling and having uh, power over things in addition to angels now being looked at as divine and almost as gods. And Paul's addressing this and he is outright refuting it. In fact, the focus of the letter of to the Colossians is centered around the supremacy of Christ. Paul centers this letter around Christ being supreme over everyone and everything. And this letter challenged the way that those at Colossae viewed and worshipped Jesus Christ. Those especially who were already part of the Christian faith. It challenged the way they viewed and worshipped Jesus Christ. And we hope that this same letter will challenge you the way you look and view Jesus Christ, the way you worship Jesus Christ. So when we get into um, Colossians, starting at verse 1, if we start at 115, it tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Colossians 115 tells us scripture is the image of the invisible God. Now, this passage is not using the term image where you may recognize it from, and where most people would probably recognize that language from in, in Genesis, uh, the beginning of Genesis, where we're told that we're created in the image of God. God said, let us create them in our image. Now, this passage is not using the ter- term image in the same way that Genesis used this term. Rather, the point here is that God himself is invisible, just as the Apostle John tells us, God is spirit But God became flesh and dwelt among us. So Christ took on humanity and became man and was now, because of that, the visible image of the invisible God. In fact, the Greek term used here is akun. If you want to use 
uh, or learn a new term today. And I, I'm not exactly the sharpest in Corne Greek, so um, I don't always pronounce things the right way. But this term akun, if you want to look it up, E-I-K-O-N in English, is a term used to describe a painting or a statue or, in other words, something that represents the original. It is not a copy of something, it is not a look-alike, but it is the representation of the original. So that term image here is telling us that Jesus is the original. He is the physical image of the invisible God. And we see similar language used, if I want to jump over here just for a second, in Hebrews 1, uh, verse 3 to be specific, that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, in the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. He's the image or the exact imprint. Now, there are some who say that this passage suggests that Jesus is not God, that he was just like God. They'll say, see, well, it's saying he's, he's the representation or he's like God, but he's not God himself. However, according to God himself, this this objection is disqualified because Christ can't be like God. God himself says no one is like him. In Isaiah 46, 9, God says, I am God and there is none like me. Just as in Isaiah 43, 10, he says that there are no other gods. He's the only God. There are no others. So in Colossians 1, 15, Paul is going out of his way to be abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is God himself. Remember, he's pitting this view against the view that the Colossians held, that all these angels and all of these other forces were like gods. It's not only Jesus. So Paul, if you look at the context of this letter, Paul is going out of his way to make abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is God himself who became flesh. Now, in the second part of this verse, we see another key word, that Jesus is the firstborn overall creation. So scripture tells us he's the firstborn. Now, this is another term that is commonly misunderstood and to this day is construed both by the Mormon and the Jehovah's Witness among many other, in my opinion, Christian cults. Firstborn does not mean what it sounds like. It does not mean the one who was born first. In fact, the Greek term from which we get firstborn doesn't emphasize the order of your birth. It emphasizes priority. And in the, in the Near Eastern culture at the time, the firstborn was not always the one who was born first, but the one who would receive the greatest inheritance. And think about it. To suggest that Jesus was the first one born, first of all, it doesn't even make sense because he wasn't the first one born. We know according to scripture, Cain was the first one born because Adam was was uh, created by God himself. He wasn't actually born from a woman. So Cain was the first one born. And Paul is talking in this letter about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Why would he all of a sudden feel the need to tell us when Jesus was born? That is not Paul, the apostle Paul's intention here. It doesn't even make sense on a practical level, let alone a theological level. And remember, you're a theologian, so you want to make sense on a theological level. But rather, Paul is emphasizing the priority and the status that Christ holds above all. In Exodus 4.22, we see this term used again. God says that Israel is my firstborn. Now, of course, Israel was not the first nation to exist. Not even close. In fact, they had to drive out other nations in order to become a nation themselves. So when Israel is called God's firstborn in Exodus 4, 
in the Old Testament, the term is used to refer to the status of Israel, the status of God's greatest nation, the status as the nation that God prioritizes in whom the Messiah Jesus Christ would eventually come through. So the same term firstborn is used here to show the status of God's people, not the order of their origin. Then we jump to Psalm 89. This is a messianic prophecy, but at the time it was literally applied to King David, even though it ultimately points to Christ. And in Psalm 89, verses 26 through 28, we see, He will call to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So clearly, God is not referring to David as the one who would become born first. That doesn't make any sense at all. And especially considering that even on a literal level, David was Jesse's youngest son, not the one who was born first. Rather, he is referring to David's status or David's position as firstborn, or in other words, as the one who would be the highest king on earth in terms of his status and his position. Now, when we apply this messianic prophecy to Colossians, we see the very same meaning. And of course, we saw the surrounding context, which makes this, I think, more than obvious, that Jesus was the greatest king. He is preeminent or surpassing not just the angels. Remember, Paul wants to make clear here, but also surpassing all creation. So Jesus is king both of the spiritual and the physical realm. And of course, that is why we worship him alone as worthy of worship. That is why he alone is able to save us from our sin. Uh, if we jump down in, in Colossians a little bit to verse 19, we also know that Jesus is not created, as Paul's uh, proclaiming to us, because in verse 19, we see that Jesus is the fullness of the deity. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is God who has become man. In the fullness, or a more helpful term, I think, is the completeness of God dwells in him. So Jesus is not just walking around with the Holy Spirit in him as we are as believers today, but Jesus, as the scripture tells us here, is completely God. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit lives inside of me as a Christian believer, but I wouldn't dare go around telling people that I am completely God. In fact, if I did, I'd probably end up in prison or in, in, in a loony bin because I am not completely God. And that's obvious if you watch me for just a few hours. So the most accurate and helpful way to put this is that Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man. So Jesus is not a demigod like we see in the movie Moana, for example, the Disney movie Moana, or like you see in Greek mythology or with Thor in the uh, Marvel series. A demigod is when the character is half God, half man. So Jesus is not half God, half man. Jesus is truly God and truly man, as we just saw, the fullness of deity dwells in him. He is completely God. So he is fully God, fully man, or truly God and truly man is, I think, the most accurate way to put it. So this means that when the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, Jesus is God and he also is human. He is not simply manifesting himself as a human. He is not commandeering a human body like a, a group of pirates would go and take over a pirate ship. He's not doing that to a human body. Jesus became truly human at 
the event of the incarnation. This means that according to scripture, he could get hungry, he could feel pain, he could be tempted, though he never embraced temptation, he could bleed and he could die, and he had a human soul. Now, some of this was objected to throughout church history, and a lot of it was debated by a handful of people. And one of those men was named Apollinarius. And, and of course, I'll make these brief. We're not going to do an entire uh, survey of Christian history. I'd love to do that at some point, maybe in a series. Um, but we're just going to make this brief. Now, Apollinarius had suggested that because God is greater than man, instead of having a human soul, Jesus' deity must have replaced his soul. And however, Orthodox Christianity recognized that if this were the case, then Jesus was not truly human and therefore could not take our place to pay for our sin. He wouldn't be sufficient. So if Jesus doesn't have a soul, he's not truly human. Just as Frankenstein, we all know who Frankenstein is. He wasn't truly human. He was like a human shell and he had human parts, but without a soul, he's not truly human. And all that scripture says about Jesus being truly human and therefore being able to emphasize with us may as well be thrown out the window if he didn't have a soul. Now we can confirm Jesus had a soul in Isaiah 53, one of my personal favorite chapters from the Old Testament, which tells us that his soul makes a sacrifice for guilt and he poured out his soul to death. So Jesus was truly human with a human soul. Now, another objection was raised by a man named Arius, and Arius had suggested, just as we saw earlier in the survey, uh, that Jesus was God's first and greatest creation. So he suggested that Jesus was, in fact, created. Now, to this day, again, both the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon hold to this testimony. But the issue with this is, first of all, it's not scripturally accurate. I mean, we, we're... we're saying that right now and we're going over and demonstrating why that view doesn't make sense but the main reason it matters that jesus is not created is that a created jesus cannot save you from hell and a created jesus cannot save you from the eternal separation of god or from the love of god by paying for your sin and giving you grace in return no created being can do that and if arius were correct that jesus was created then we would have no hope but this is why the early church had fought this objection at the Council of Nicaea and added into the Nicene Creed, you can look for yourself, that Jesus was begotten, not made. So Jesus was not created, he became man. And lastly, Nestorius, a man named Nestorius suggested that Jesus had two natures, God and man, which is biblically accurate, but he also suggested as a result that Jesus must have been two persons. Now, this is a mistake because Jesus is two natures. He's God and man, but he's only one person. Remember, Scripture doesn't say Jesus's died on the cross or Jesus's wept. Jesus is God, is God in man, but he is one person, and that's the mystery behind his nature. And while Nestorius was wrong in one direction, a man named Eutyches came along and opposed Nestorius, but now he ended up in a heresy in the other direction because Eutyches came along and said, you have it all wrong. See, Jesus is only one person, but he's also one nature, a mix of God and man. And of course, Eutyches had suggested that his godness had absorbed his humanity, that God is greater than man. In this heresy, they called the monophysite controversy or the monophysite heresy, mono meaning one, physite, Sounds like physical, doesn't it? 
meaning physical or nature. So it's monophysite heresy. It's the one nature heresy. Eutyches wanted to correct Nestorius, but he ended up just starting another heresy. And you don't have to remember every single one of these names, though they do matter. But the whole point is to have these examples that aren't true so that we can look closer at what is true and better understand who Jesus Christ is and why it matters. If Jesus, if it is true that Jesus Christ died on the cross being truly God and truly man in order to pay for our sins, then it is true that he, as the Apostle Paul wanted to make clear to the church in Colossae, that he is sufficient to save us, and Christ alone is all we need to depend on for our salvation and for our joy. If you decide to put your faith in Christ, please let us know at information at apologetics.org. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next week for the Universe Next Door.